Thank you for listening to Jubilee Tri-Valley's podcast. Today's podcast is part four of our sermon series entitled, In the Beginning. Please enjoy. In the beginning. Real quick, how many of you were not here last week? You were not here, raise your hand. Hey, you need to go get the CD last week. Last week we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, that's one of those sermons that I, I always take as a, as a personal challenge to like, okay, how can I make Sodom and Gomorrah good and relevant? And just, it's, a, it's a doozy. So anyway, it, it, definitely worth listening to. Go pick up the CD or you go download it on iTunes or whatever it is. And, and if, you're, if, if you're new or you haven't been here in several weeks, here's what we're doing. We're in part four now of, of a five-part series called In the Beginning, where we are walking through not everything. Genesis is one of the most loaded books of the Bible. I mean, there's just so much in there. And there's some weird stuff in there. Can, can I get amen? There's some just... There's some stuff you want to skip over in there. But, uh, but anyway, we, we're just taking some of the big ideas from Genesis. So we've walked through creation and what that looked like. And we walked through the Tower of Babel. And we walked through uh, last week, Sodom and Gomorrah. This week, we're going to take a look at what I believe to me is the most, I'm going to say, fascinating story in the entire book of Genesis. It, it, I, hopefully you love this as much as I love this. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 22. We're gonna read from and talk from a story that in the Hebrew Bible they refer to as the Akedah or what they call the binding. It is a story of where Abraham, the patriarch of all of Israel and what we refer to as the father of our faith, Abraham takes his son up on an altar and is told to kill and sacrifice his son. And the whole dynamic is just incredible. So anyway, let's bow your heads with me. Let's pray as we begin today. Father, God, let your word speak. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would dig it up in us. You would move it around, shake it up. That you would penetrate our heart, penetrate our mind. That Lord God, we would get a glimpse of your grace and your goodness and that, God, we would walk out of these doors different people because of what you've said, God. That is our prayer. I think I've asked a lot, but I know that you can do it, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said? Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 22. If not, read along on the screens. This is the way that the story goes. The Bible says in verse 1 that sometime later, I mean, that's a great way to start off. Sometime later than what? A lot of stuff. I don't have time to cover it all. Just this is after the fact. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Just in case you don't know, like the, it, it, God drives it home. Your son, the only one you got. The one you really, really love. Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. How do you know that's just incredible, isn't it? That's some great instructions. I want you to go to a mountain. Where? I'll show you when you get there. Like GPS, a map. Just, you know, he just basically says, head, head towards Moriah and I'll pick a mountain when you get there. Can you imagine explaining that to your wife? Can you imagine explaining this entire story to your wife? Oh yeah, babe, by the way, I was talking to God the other day and he said that I'm gonna kill the kid and I gotta go over there to do it. So can you imagine like, yeah, that'd be an interesting dinner conversation, wouldn't it? So the Bible says that early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, everybody say on the third day. 
You've heard that before. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. I, 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 I'm going to make a couple of comments as we walk through the text and then we'll get into the big ideas in just a minute. But I, I love what he says here. Because isn't there a tension already? I mean, there's a tension of like, you want me to do what? Now, how many out there, like, you love your kids? Like, they are incredibly valuable and special to you. They have moments where they make you crazy. But by and large, you would kill for your kids. You have the thought every once in a while of killing your kid, but you'd never do it. But you certainly wouldn't have the thought to say, I'm going to kill my kid. Because God told me. And, and by the way, what God would ever tell you to kill your kid? What kind of a God is that? What, what kind of a God? What kind of a, wow. I don't even know that I want to serve this God, do I? Because if I, want, I don't know that I want to serve a God that tells me that I need to kill my kid. I mean, there's some tension here in the story. You've got to put yourself into his shoes and figure out, this is my son, my only son. The one who I really, really love. The one I waited a long, long time to get. And now you just want me to kill him. But he says to the servants, he goes, the boy and I are going over there to worship. And we, everybody say we, we will come back to you. You know what I think when you, you hear these words? You've just got to put yourself in Abraham's shoes and say, there's something that Abraham knows that maybe we don't know. And it's this, is that even though God has asked him to do something outlandish, Abraham never believed that God was being evil. He believed that God was both holy and gracious. And he didn't know how that was going to work out. He didn't know if God was going to stop him. He didn't know if God was just going to raise the kid back to life again. That, that's in the realm of possibility. He didn't, had no idea what was going on. But he was confident, even though God had asked him to do something ridiculous and outlandish, he was confident still in the goodness of God. So the Bible says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and Isaac himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke up and said, Dad, um, yep, kid, the fire is here. Uh, the wood is here. But, Dad, there's no lamb for the burnt offering. This is a pretty, pretty sharp kid, isn't it? Okay, Dad, like we got, I've done this before. This is not new. We do offerings. That's how we roll. There's wood, there's fire, and then there's that little animal that we kill well we got the wood and we got the and i'm not trying to tell you how to do your job you you did this you taught me how to do this but don't we need an offering you got to think and this is what you need to know about the story most people when they read the story they picture abraham taking like a two-year-old or a five-year-old or some little kid he can just you know tie up and body slam and then Most people have this odd image, but, but, but the Bible says in just the, just the verse before that Abraham put the wood on Isaac's shoulder and made him carry it up the mountain. How old do you have to be to pull that off? Isaac was no kid. As a matter of fact, the very next story after this is when uh, his mom dies and his mom is 127 years old when she dies. This is the very next story. Well, how old was she when Isaac was born? 90. So you're talking about, and scholars will tell you that Isaac was anywhere between 15 and 37 years old. He was no kid, which is fascinating implications because here's what I know about my kids. Like my, my little boy is nine and I can still punish him. Like we get to wrestling after it and I just whoop him. 
And it was so much fun to put your kid in a headlock and, and to take him and just lift him up. And we get in the pool and I will just thrash him. It was so much fun. He's nine though. But, and he, but he's built like his uncle. And his uncle's like 6'4", 225. And I'm, I'm nervous because I know one day that kid will be bigger than me. And, and I just know. So I'm getting in all the thrashing I can get right now because he's nine. And I can still outrun him. I'm still a lot bigger and stronger than he is. But like you, you, you got to put yourself in, in Isaac's shoes. He's anywhere from 15 to 37 years old. And Abraham's over what? A hundred. Okay, I can outrun any hundred-year-old man out there. I will bet a thousand. I can outrun any hundred-year-old man out there. I can do that. And I guarantee you, my, my point is this, is that Isaac voluntarily laid his life down. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I, Isaac at some point said, okay, Dad. If this is what we got to do, this is what we got to do. Because I know at that age, and you got a hundred plus year old man, now I'm not dogging out old people, but when you're over a hundred, you're in your golden years, okay? You're not speedy anymore, okay? And my point is that Isaac at any point in time could have run or could have fought back. And it's a good feeling too. I don't know if you can go back in your mind. Do you, do you remember some of you grown ups like, well, you remember? Because I remember my dad was like that with me. My dad was always this big, stocky, farm bred, big old farmhand dude. You know, and my dad would just, he'd do the same thing. We had a great relationship as kids and he'd beat me up a little bit and punish me and throw me around and we'd, we'd wrestle and all that stuff. And I, you know, one of the most fun experiences in the world was when you get old enough to where he can't do that anymore. Isn't that a great feeling? Because my dad would get on me and he'd be like, boy, your, your alligator mouth is overloading your hummingbird butt. And then, and then he'd just put the, he'd put the smack down on me. And, and, and then all of a sudden, I remember coming home from college. Because again, my dad was stocky. And I was still a skinny high school kid. But, but after college though, you know what I'm saying? Started to lift weights and fill out a little bit more. And all of a sudden, I'm in my 20s and we start wrestling around and grabbing around. And I was like, dad, you're going to bite off more than you can chew? And that was the last time dad ever wrestled with me. Because he knew. But so my point is this there comes a point in time where Isaac has the ability to fight or to run, but for whatever reason, he's a dad if this is what we got to do. So, what we got to do. So, the Bible said that God responds to Isaac's inquiry. And he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know. Everybody say that phrase. Everybody say, now I know. Now you got to remember the very first verse said this. And there came a time that God tested Abraham. So God, now I know. I want you to discover what God knows now. We'll get to that in a minute. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up there in a thicket and he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place in the Hebrew Jehovah Jireh, which means this, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The mountain of the Lord, by the way, all throughout the rest of Scripture, if we go to Psalms, Isaiah, Zechariah, do you know what the mountain of the Lord is? The mountain of the Lord is the same mountain area where the temple is built in Jerusalem. Now in Abraham's day, there was no Jerusalem. 
and there was no temple. But this was a future idea that the mount of the Lord and from, from Moses forward and from Solomon forward, they began to move towards the mount of the Lord and that's where they made the sacrifices. And this is, was, was them foreshadowing something that would take place in the future and saying, you know what, on this same mountain, it will be provided. Here's what I want you to do is I want you to work through three big ideas that I think Abraham was faced with as he walked through this experience. You gotta remember how emotionally loaded it is. But he, the first question I want you to ask yourself and Abraham had to ask himself is this, is, is God's asking, do you love me like they love their God? See, you have to remember that Abraham was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And in there, you know, they used to worship a God named Moloch and they sacrificed their children to Moloch. Even in Canaan, to, to child sacrifice was a pretty common. We think of it as incredibly barbaric to them. It would have been somewhat normalized behavior for them to kill their kids. As a matter of fact, if you go read 2 Kings, and the, 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 the reference, if you really want to look at it, is 2 Kings chapter 3. There's a guy named Moab who lived in the area of Canaan, and he was a king. And when he was losing, this is what he did. He said, we're losing. We're about to get beat in the battle. Give me my firstborn son. And he kills his firstborn son, thinking that, and this was their belief, they believed that when you sacrifice that God would do something on your behalf, that you could get God to do what you wanted to do if you sacrifice big enough. What's the biggest possible thing that you can sacrifice? Your only son, your first. See, it, 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 that was a bigger deal than sacrificing yourself because you got to remember in that culture, in that day, the firstborn son represented the future of the family. It represented everything. Your success did not matter nearly as much as the firstborn success and that you wrote on whatever they would accomplish and whatever they did and whatever they fulfilled, that was what made family legacy and family history and that was the most important thing you could do. So the king of Moab says, I'm... I'm going to give God the biggest sacrifice I can give because I don't want to die and I don't want my people to be obliterated. All this. So you got to remember, as a matter of fact, one rabbi said this. One rabbi, when, in, in, in referring to Genesis chapter 22, basically put it this. What's shocking to the people that read this is not that God asked Abraham to kill his son. What was shocking was is that God stopped him. That was more shocking to the people in Abraham's day retelling or reliving or re-walking through this story. It was a shock. So this is, this is in essence God saying, you know what? Do you love me like they love their gods? They, they give up everything for their gods. Would you be willing to give that up for me? Which has kind of enormous ramifications when I begin to personalize that and ask myself the question, am, am I really willing to sacrifice to the level that other people are willing to sacrifice? Because some people do some crazy stuff. People live wild lives, extreme lives. Put, put it this way. Think about what people are willing to do to get what they really want in life. People are willing to lie, cheat, steal, kill, do whatever it takes to gain and accomplish and get that thing. And you almost wonder, I almost wonder if, if Isaac had become an idol to Abraham. You ever thought about that? You ever think about the fact that Abraham, all he ever wanted was a son? And God even kind of teased him a little bit and said, you're going to have a son one day. And then like 10 years later, he's like, God, you said, I still don't have no kids. Abraham, do you know that he waited 25 years to get Isaac? That's a long time to wait, to wait on a promise that you, you starting to waver. And, and then finally, when he get at some point in time, I, I guess the question is this, is do you think that Isaac ever got to a point where really it was more about getting the kid and not getting God? That maybe God became a means to getting what he wanted? Does that sound like any of us at times in our life? Where it's not that we really want God, we want what God has to offer. 
that we really don't want God. We want God to do what we need him to do. And so God becomes the means to the end. And so the very thing that, that, that Isaac was to him, because remember, look how God placed it in the text. He said, I want your son, your only son, the one whom you really, really, really love. That's what I want. And you know what I think? I think God began to notice and recognize the condition of Abraham's heart that maybe Isaac had become more important than God had become in his life. He says, I need you to give that up because I don't want there to be anything more important. And, and, and here's the deal. It's not that he didn't want Isaac to not be loved. And, and, and here's the reality for you. It's not that God doesn't want you to love your kids. But he doesn't want you to love your kids too much in relationship to God and love God too little. Does that make sense? That's when things become idolatrous. It, it's not that we love things. It's that we love things too much in relationship to God. And we love God too little. And some of us do that with our career. And we pursue, 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 pursue. And we're praying the whole time, wanting God to bless and God to advance and God to promote. And we're, but really, what, what, is it God or is it the career? And there's nothing wrong with loving your job, but there is something wrong when we love our job too much and we love God too little. And this is where he, in essence, says, well, now I know. Now I know that you fear me. And this is what it means to fear God. It's that God, I will not put anything above you. And some of us do that with that relationship. We so badly want that kid. We so badly want that marriage. We so badly want that guy or that girl. And we're just pursue, 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 pursue. And it's not that we love them too much. It's that we, we love God too little in comparison. And God said, I want you to be able to love me more than anything. Second question is this. Do you trust me? See, this is huge. Because see, many of us have an easy time believing in God. We have a harder time trusting in God. There's a big, big difference, isn't there? See, the idea of, of, of trust and the idea of faith collide. Because see, when we read the New Testament, we read it from kind of like a, an Eastern Greek type philosophy of understanding, which is this. We believe in something, don't we? But this is not the way a Hebrew person would believe. As a matter of fact, when you read all of the Bible, they never, they never considered believing in God to be anything great. That was understood. That was commonplace. That was a given. So if you're like, if you come to me and be like, hey, I believe in God, these people would say, whoop-de-doo. Great job. Now you're just up to par with what everybody's always like. like, like that, that's not the thing. The question is not, do you believe in God? The question is, do you, do you trust God? It's the Hebrew word, Imuna. Everybody say that with me. Everybody say it's a nice, do we get this in there? Just repeat it after me. Everybody say umuna. Imuna is the Hebrew word for faith. But again, when we say it, we think, well, I believe in something. L -l Let me give you some, some thoughts here. It's more like faithfulness than a static state of mind. Like faith and faithfulness are two ideas that you cannot separate. Does that make sense? This is what Abraham truly puts on display, doesn't he? Because it's not enough to say, I believe in God. It's, it's not enough to have all your doctrines right. you got to live out the doctrines. Does that make sense? It, it's just not enough. As a matter of fact, to, to put it more clearly, imunah, faith, is more belief in than belief that. Let me say it again. It, it's more belief in than it is belief that. Let, let me give you an example. Many of you believe God, that God is powerful. I want you to believe in his power. Does that make sense? Many of you believe that God is holy. I want you to believe in his holiness. Because if you believe that God's holy, we just intellectually, you know, accept that something is true. But see, when you believe in his holiness, you respond to life differently. 
There's a difference between making a mental acknowledgement of it and saying, no, 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 we're going to walk with this because I don't believe that he's holy. I believe in his holiness and therefore I walk and live a life that reflects that belief. Some of us with, with God's love, we believe that God is love. I don't want you to believe that. That's, that's great. That's a starting point. I want you to believe in his love and then live the rest of your life fully validated that God is so madly in love with you that you don't need to pursue love from everybody else and chase down and look for love in all the wrong places and end up with Mr. Right now instead of Mr. Right because you needed, because you, you, you believe God that he had love, but you didn't believe in his love. And it takes on this idea of action. It takes on this idea of, no, I walk this out. This isn't just acknowledgement. This is life. As a matter of fact, James summed it up really, really good in James chapter 2. He describes this story. By the way, this story is recounted a couple different times in the New Testament. This is just one of them. James 2 says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? See, righteousness didn't come just after Jesus. Abraham somehow got a hold of it. And he got a hold of it because he believed God. But not in an intellectual sense but in a faithfulness sense. Listen to this. You see that faith and his actions were working together and his faith, faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now let me ask you a question. Didn't, God, didn't Abraham already believe in God? The way we think about believing in God, he, he absolutely did. What was the difference in this story? He walked it. There's a difference between, yeah, I had a conversation with God. Yeah, I pray. Yeah, I go to, no, do, do, do you walk it? Because when we walk, not that he is, or not that, not that he has all, the, but that he is all these things. All of a sudden, things change. Last verse says this. It says, verse number 23, excuse me. It says, and the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by intellectual belief alone. That just changes everything. See, what God's wanting to know is that do you trust me? Like, does your faith have faithfulness? Or if it's just intellectual, that's kind of weak. That's not measuring up. God wants you not just believe that, but believe in as a matter of fact, let, let, me, let me put it like this. Imunot represents active trust in the goodness of the Lord and it expresses itself as loyalty to his will. That's what we're talking about here. Something that's walked, because see, it takes a lot of, of actual imuna to strap some sticks to the back of your son's back and say, kid, we're walking. And we're just gonna do what we have to do. And we're gonna obey and we're gonna trust that God is holy and that he's gracious. And I don't know how this is gonna turn out, but I've just got to go and I've got to trust. And think about what Isaac did. Isaac said, well, dad, if this is what we got to do, this is what we got to do. And I'll just trust. But as you trust, you keep on walking. It's totally different, isn't it? Well, you trust him. When he asks you to do something. Because see, here, here's the thing. It, it crosses a line like that career that you so love and you so want. Wait until all of a sudden you're, you're, you're tempted to compromise your integrity. Then all of a sudden we get to see, do you trust? No, 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 no. We know you believe in God. That's not the issue. Do you trust? That if you go ahead and maintain your integrity and, and maybe you get fired or maybe other people advance ahead of you, that's trust. When, when, you, when you sacrifice things for God, knowing that's what's right above, that's what's in your heart to do because the Bible says that our heart leads us astray, but what God's word is always true. 
So the question is, did you follow your heart that leads you astray, or did you just trust what God said and still continue to walk? There's a challenge there. This isn't easy. So the first question is this, is will you lovely, love me like they love their God? The second question is, will you actually trust me? And then the third and final question is this, and this is fascinating. Will you, will you be my friend? I love this. James says, and Abraham, you got to remember this. Like, Abraham's the only guy in all of the Old Testament that is ever referred to as the friend of God. That's status. That's something unique. Like, like not everybody got that label. Not everybody got tagged with that thing. And you got to think, what did he do? I, here, here's what I really, really believe. Here's what I think happened. What makes great friendships is what I call gettability. Like, you get me. Can I get an amen out there? You just... The people that you love, they just get you, and you get them. And there's a connection, and there's a bond, and you can't force. How many know you can't force friendships? Why? Because that's weird. Like, you can't walk up and be like, you're going to be my friend. You can get a restraining order doing that stuff. So you can't force friendship. Friendship comes from a gettability. That's a made-up word. It's not real. But it's something that we all understand, though. And you know what gettability comes down to many times is we relate to people that have shared some of the same experiences we do in some shape or some manner. Is that fair to say? That's some gettability. You know what I think? I think God is sitting there thinking, I need a guy who's going to be the patriarch for the future of the entire nation of Israel and eventually the entire world. I need somebody that gets me. I need somebody that if they're going to be the standard, if they're going to be the it that starts everything, I need somebody that knows what it's like to be me. And here's what I know about me. One day, I'm going to have to march my son up on a hill and I'm going to have to kill him so that the entire world will be blessed. Would Abraham be willing to do that? Because if you know what it's like to be me, man, that's friendship. That's some gettability. And the way that you do that, because I, I think you can do that too. You never get to go back and be in the book of Genesis and you never get to be in the pages of scripture, but you get to be connected. You get to get some gettability with God. And the way that you do that is you invite God into your experience. Because when you invite God into your experience and you learn to see the experience from your vantage point and vantage point, there's some gettability. Like you, you've been divorced. It was painful and it was awful. God's been divorced. That's what the scripture says. So your pain and his pain are similar in the fact that you both went through it? Yep. But many of us, we got bitter and we got mad and we got angry and we turned God away. But what if we invited God in and said, God, you know what it's like to be divorced. What if I saw it from your vantage point and you saw it from my vantage point and then we get each other? The book of Hosea has a fascinating story. The book of Hosea is about a prince who is told by God that I want you to go marry a prostitute. Because I need somebody that's got some getability. If you're going to speak my words, you've got to get me. Here, and here's what you need to know. I want you to understand what it's like to love a person that cheats on you. Because that's what it's like to be God. And all throughout the scripture, you can see all these different ideas. Like, like, like you know, we grew up maybe and you're like, well, my dad never believed in me. God's like, people don't believe in me all the time. <laughs> we think about... Maybe getting wounded and offended, rejected, hurt, cheated on. God's like, uh, yep. Jesus is like, man, I had 12 of my best friends. One of them's the one that turned me in for money. The other one denied me three times, and the rest of them just scattered and ran. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to have your friends de-Facebook you. You know what I'm saying? I get that. Somebody talked bad about you. I, I get that. 
Somebody hurts you? I get that. And see, when you invite God into the pain, all of a sudden, I, I guarantee you this, if you will do this, God will begin to show you things and make things so real to you. And all of a sudden, there's a get it factor. And you become a little bit closer in your relationship with God. The reason why I know that is because, indeed, after this experience in Genesis chapter 22, that 2,000 years later, you find Jesus, the Son of God. And I want you to see the similarities, because I told you that Jesus is all throughout the book of Genesis. He's in Genesis 1-1 as the centerpiece of all creation. He's at the Tower of Babel. I never showed you that one, but the Bible says that when God is talking about the, the Tower of Babel, he said, come, let us go down there. Who's the us? God did not have a frog in his pocket. He was with Jesus. Jesus is in the Tower of Babel. We looked last week at Sodom and Gomorrah, and we think God in the Old Testament was angry, and Jesus is kind because he's always holding that lamb and praying for kids. But we find, actually, it was Jesus who condemned Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament, sometimes hidden, sometimes obvious. And today you will see he is there as a type and a shadow of future events to come. Because Abraham was going to experience what it was like to be God. And this is what I mean. Number one is this. When you look at Isaac and you look at Jesus, both were announced by an angel. Before Isaac ever showed up, an angel showed up to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son. Get ready. Both involved a miraculous birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. Isaac was born of a really, really, really elderly woman. Both were offered as sacrifices by their father. Both events happened at the same location. Both arrived to their death on a donkey. Both arose on the third day. Both carried the wood on which they were to be sacrificed. Both faced their death voluntarily. And lastly, all nations are blessed and the sun lives on. Yeah. See, God told Abraham, I'm gonna give you a promise that through your seed and through your son that the entire earth will be blessed. He didn't even know that that really had nothing to do with Isaac, but that 2,000 years later that he would have a seed in his bloodline that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed and the sun lives on. I'm gonna wrap it up right here. Everybody say, now I know. Now I know. See, Abraham was tested. He passed the test and God says, now I know. Now I know that you fear me, that Isaac's not an idol, that you would do anything for me that they would do for their God, that you get me. There's some made up get ability word that I made up. To, there, there's all these different things. I know that you trust me now. This isn't intellectual faith. This is trust. This is faithfulness. This is loyalty to my will. There's something rich. There's something deep here. And now I know. And as I look at this story, you know what I think we get to say now? I think we get to look back at God in light of the cross and say, now I know. This worked both ways. Because now I know that God did not withhold his son, his only son, in whom he loved. Now I know that God loves me, and I never have to doubt that again. Let's pray this morning. God, I'm so glad that we get to look back into Genesis chapter 22, that we get to look back at Jesus on the cross and say, now I know. Now I know that all along you had a plan, 
And all along, it wasn't you were trying to get a guy to kill a son. Now I had nothing to do with it. But now I know God. That Abraham didn't withhold his son, his only son, and whom he really, really loved. And 2,000 years ago, you didn't withhold your son, your only son, and whom you really, really loved. So that I could have life. So that I could be free. So that I could be saved. So that I could be redeemed. So that I could have life. So Father, I thank you today. And God, I pray that everybody here within the sound of my voice knows that as well. And God, that if they didn't know that when they walked in this place, that today, God, in their heart, they would turn towards you. That God, they would turn towards you not just in an intellectual acknowledgement. That's nice. But God, we want so much more than that. God, we want to imunah. We want to walk with you. We want to be faithful to your will, loyal to your will. God, we want to walk this out. We want to just not believe that you are, but we want to believe in it, God. We want to believe in your love. We want to believe in your power. We want to believe in your faithfulness. We want to believe in your holiness. And so, God, I pray that all of us today, God, in our hearts would turn towards you. That, yes, we would acknowledge, but then we would begin to walk. And if you're in here today and you say, Todd, that's, that's kind of different. You know, I grew up going to church and I knew the stories and I knew all that, but this is different and I need to walk with God now. Or maybe you're in this place and this is brand new and you have never heard this before. I, I don't know where you're at in life, but God does. And can I encourage you? I want you to take a step of faith right now and begin to walk with God. And I want to invite you in and say, you know what? If you've never asked God to come into your life, to change your life, to change your heart, if you've never said, God, I want to walk with you and trust in you, then today's your day. As a matter of fact, if that's you today, I want you to raise your hand on the count of three and just say, Todd, just between me and you, I want to walk with God. I want to know God. I want to follow him. I, I don't want just some intellectual acknowledgement that God is real, but God, I, I want his presence in my life. On the count of three, slip your hand up in the air. One, two, three, and put your hand up in the air. Amen. Some of us, it's, just, it's time to get off the bench and to get on the field. For some of us, we, we, we've been in the pews and, and, and been acknowledging mentally, but it's time to walk with God now. It's time to actually obey even when it doesn't make sense. It's time to be loyal even when it, it's going to cost us something. And then, and then only do we really get to experience the true presence and blessing of God. Let's pray together, church. Can we do it out loud? I want everybody to pray together this prayer out loud, but especially those of you who raised your hand. I just want you to pray this prayer from the bottom of your heart. Look, no prayer saves you. This isn't like a magic trick. You turning towards God in your heart and walking with him, that's what God wants from you today. This is just a step in saying, God, I want that too. So let's pray together, church. Everybody pray this out loud so you can hear it with your own ears. Everybody say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my heart. I need you to change my life. I need you to forgive me of all my sins. And I have lots. I need your help to follow you, but I want to. I want to know you. I want to follow you today and every day for the rest of my life. So help me, God. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. And we all said, amen. Thank you again for listening to Jubilee Tri-Valley's podcast. For more information on Jubilee Tri-Valley Church, please visit us online at jtvchurch.org.